Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Chief Master Sergeant Roger Tilberman is the Senior Enlisted Advisor of the United States Space Force and Command Senior Enlisted Leader of the United States Space Command. Chief Tilberman represents the highest enlisted level of leadership and provides direction for the enlisted force representing their interests. He serves as the personal advisor to the Chief of Space Operations and the Secretary of the Air Force on all issues regarding welfare, readiness, morale, proper utilization, and the development of the United States Space Force. And he is the first enlisted member of the United States Space Force and the first to be appointed to its highest enlisted position. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. Wow, thanks. It's a lot of pressure when you read my job like that. I'm like, holy cow. No, thanks for having me. Definitely. What is your job? Tell us about yourself. Tell us about what do you do in the Space Force? I was an airman for 29 years. So most of my career has been in the Air Force. I was a airborne cryptologic linguist by trade. So a lot of time in intelligence, a lot of time on deployments, a lot of time in the air. I was command chief wing level at numbered Air Force level. I worked for the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force. So I did a stint in the Pentagon working for the Assistant Secretary when Mr. Manasco was the Assistant Secretary for Manpower and Reserve Affairs and teamed with Chief Wright while I was up there on a lot of personnel changes and development changes. A lot of the things that we've seen rolled out in the Air Force over the last four or five years, got to be a part of that. got to work with Chief Arnold when I was up there. So that was really neat and where we got to be good friends up there as well. And then General Raymond asked me to come over to space a few years ago. So I came over to Air Force Space Command and then got on the U.S. Space Command train as we stood up our 11th Combatant Command and then was so lucky that when he had to look around and find someone to be his teammate to stand up the Space Force that he asked me to do that. And so here we are. It's been pretty exciting. On the 3rd of April, I enlisted into the Space Force. So I stopped being an airman after 29 and a half years on the 3rd of April. And here I am in blue name tapes and in the Space Force doing everything we can to kind of get off the ground. We've got several lines of effort, but really to how are we going to organize? How are we going to get the personnel that we need? How are we going to establish a culture, an identity that we can be proud of. And so that's it. I mean, it's everything. We're so small and things are moving so fast that it's not like you can pick two or three things and be like, this is it. Mm -hmm. It's everything all the time. And it's exciting. It's fun. I mean, we're having yeah. a good time. 
I know you've been touring here at SMC and LA Air Force Base. You probably talk about Space Force a lot. I want to ask you about yourself. I think my life's pretty simple. I work, you know, hard. And when I'm not at work, I spend time with my wife, with our cats, as you know. I'm a fly fisherman, so I spend a lot of time, as much time as I can, alone on the stream. That's one thing I'll definitely miss about Colorado is the fishing. There's good fishing in the D.C. area, but not like there's fishing in Colorado. I used to race bicycles. I raced bicycles for a while, so I still get on a bicycle from time to time and try to get enough sleep and enough exercise and eat well enough that I can give myself fully to you know, what I'm being asked to do. Outside of that, I'm pretty simple, I think. I don't know. What's your grit story? Man, I have so many grit stories. The common theme, I think, is it normally was I'd put myself into that position. To develop grit or to encounter no, difficulties? No, like whatever trouble I was in, like it was my fault, mm. you know, that I was there in the first place. I graduated high school and decided I was smart enough to go out on my own. So as a young teenager, I pack everything I own in a car that I would end up living out of and moved across the country. And it started really a long kind of string of interesting places. I've stolen food out of dumpsters to feed myself. I've begged for change on the corner. I've slept in a broke down automobile. None of it was life throwing itself at me. All of it was my pride or my laziness or my, you know, like <laughs> it was always me. What but, happened uh, that you had to pack uh, up your stuff in the car? Gosh, you know, <laughs> I really don't remember. So I just made a string of really interesting choices as a teenager. I would come in the Air Force at 22. I got in a little bit of trouble as an airman. I wasn't the best behaved always, so. And why did you join? Before I came in the Air Force, I had an interesting career as a musician and as a singer, and I was bopping around. And when you're 22 years old and you're playing gigs and you're this kind of small town, you know, quote unquote rock star, it can be literally and figuratively a pretty intoxicating life. And you can get kind of caught up in it because you're like, hey, people like me and I can do anything I want. And it's a lot of fun. And somehow I was smart enough at the time to realize that one day I would be really, really old, like 30, and I wouldn't be, you know, young and cool and pretty anymore, and I needed a plan. And so I was just smart enough to know that a life of running around like a goofball was not going to take me anywhere. What kind of music did you play? It was 1990 when I came in the Air Force, so we were kind of stuck there in this tweener world between the kind of hair metal pop rock of the 80s and the grunge movement that would escort us into the 90s. And yeah, I don't know why we're talking about this now, <laughs> but uh, there I was. And so uh, my life as a rock star complete. <laughs> I found myself at basic training in September of 1990 and an opportunity to kind of restart my life. And in many ways, it was relatively easy. I found it pretty easy to just, hey, do what you're told and pay attention and work hard. That stuff came easy to me. There was times, though, that my passion to be an individual and sort of my opinions on things would get me in a little over my head. So I did find myself in a little bit of trouble. 
as a senior airman, and I had to kind of navigate myself through that. It was when I learned interesting things about the way that I had been raised that I thought were kind of these immutable truths that I believed. I'm like, well, this is how the world works. And I just remember people looking at me going, no, 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 that's not how the world works for everybody. Like, where did you grow up? What is the example of that? The example, you know, frankly, is I believed, I really believed that there were situations in life where it was acceptable or maybe even preferred way of conflict resolution was physical violence. Like, I was raised to think that was okay. If you had a disagreement with someone, you just punch them in the face and you sorted it out and then mm-hmm. now your differences were resolved and you move forward. Mm-hmm. And so as I tried that method as an airman, I found that, wait a minute, mm-hmm. the rest of the world doesn't think you can just get in a fist fight with someone like that. That's not okay. Mm-hmm. It was as funny as it is kind of 28 years later, 20 however long ago that was, It's odd to think about that like a movie that I watched, but I know enough to know that I really believed. I'm like, no, this is okay. Like this guy and Mm -hmm. me, we couldn't agree. So you just (laughs) duke it out. The Air Force had other ideas. And so there I sat across from some pretty significant paperwork, right, in my young career. And I remember my girlfriend at the time telling me, like, she's like, you just can't hit people. And I just remember thinking, what do you mean you can't hit people? (laughs) Like that guy is a jerk. It's fascinating. I actually think it's apropos to a lot of things that are happening today, because I don't believe in this country, most people are as aware as they could be on just how culturally diverse we really are. Mm -hmm. And that the America that one person grows up in may be completely foreign to the America that another person grows up in. Mm Even and, though they yeah. come maybe from the same state of right, the same town. Exactly, right. Maybe the same town. And so I almost think, ironically, it's easier to accept those differences and prepare ourselves for them and be open to them when we know somebody's from a different culture and I can hear an accent mm-hmm. or I can know that they're not from where I'm from and I can wrap my head around that and I can be more accepting, more tolerant. And somehow we're not. In fact, Chief Wright and I were talking recently, and he said, you know, we go through all this training. If we're going to send someone to a foreign country on a deployment, we'll spend all this time talking about, this is how you're going to drink tea before you have an important conversation. This is how you need to dress. This is what's going to happen at the front door. We'll go on and on about these cultural differences. And when we go to visit, we won't talk about those cultural differences at all when we talk about the difference between growing up in this place in the country or growing up in this place. We don't spend any time educating people about the cultural diversity in our own nation. It is interesting how there is more differences in homogeneous group. Yeah, it's fascinating. And if you're not braced for that, if you're not educated on that, if we don't escort people through how to handle that, whose fault is it that they fail? I've been destitute, no doubt. I mean, truly, stolen food to feed myself, not a penny to my name, but I've never been in that situation because of things I didn't control. My dad was a police officer. I remember as a teenager finding entertainment by dressing like a hoodlum and walking the streets late at night so that a cop would 
follow us or chase us down or stop us. And I thought it was hilarious, right? And then eventually he'd find out who my dad was. He'd find out who I was and then it would all go away. So I know what it's like to be profiled and to be put up against the wall by a cop. I do not know what that's like to have that happen for things that I couldn't change for the color of my skin. I never felt like my life was at risk, right? Like it's a completely different. And so while I have tasted challenging things for sure, I don't feel like it was ever anything I kind of didn't deserve. I earned every bit of it. And while I I think that's probably a lot of people that are in trying places, they kind of put themselves, let's be honest, like you're here because you're here, like you did this. But not everyone, and especially some of the big high profile things that we're talking about today, man, there's stuff that human beings do things to other human beings that are just, just unbelievable. And so, and truly, when we talk about white privilege, for instance, in the back of my mind, I always knew, I always knew, okay, if I swallow my pride and my ego and my arrogance, and I walk back into my grandfather's house, I can get forgiven. I will have a roof over my head. I will be fed. Like, this is me. I'm on the streets of Palo Alto, and I'm sleeping in a broke down car, and I'm stealing food, and I'm begging for money. But if I just start walking, I'll get to a relative's house and they will take me in and it will be okay. But there are people that don't have that choice, right? I mean, truly don't have those choices in life. And I I can't ever pretend that, that I understand those kinds of struggles. I almost feel guilty maybe that I've played around with struggles, right? Like I've... It's almost like you wanted to improve on yourself to see what it would feel like. You kind of dip your toe in that water and it's very different. I would recommend it. Like, I think it's better than living with a silver spoon in your mouth. I learned a lot, but I I never felt like I was operating without a net. You know, I always knew on some level I have a safety net under me. And that makes it different. It even makes risk different, right? Like, there's a big difference between, wait a minute. I'm going to take a little gamble here because I know I've got a safety net. And wait a minute, if I guess wrong, like I might die or my children might starve to death or whatever, even those things are different. And I don't think we appreciate how much difference a safety net means in risk calculation. And it is true, right? Like nothing risk, nothing gain. But how can you risk anything when you have nothing? There's history that we haven't learned in this country that we don't teach and learn in this country. We would be way better off if everybody understood that the American dream, as it is sold, as a back to simple and hard, right? That's the simple ideal that, oh, if, if you want something, you just work for it and you can do it and anyone can do anything. I guess that's kind of true, but it doesn't acknowledge that the barriers in our journeys are different. And when we pitch it in so simple terms as those, the risk is that if someone doesn't achieve then, and we've told them that the only variable is them, 
then they have no one to blame but themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's bullshit. This is what's going to happen when you talk to me, right? We're going to go crazy. We're going to go off on tangents. That's good. Anyway, so yeah, I got in a little bit of trouble that I got myself into. And then, you know, you work your way out of it and you move on. My first marriage didn't go well. I certainly had my grit tested with that. Again, mostly my fault. I've deployed 19 times, so I've seen a lot of things. I've been gone a lot. I have been tested. I have tested myself. I have had to get out of my own way over and over and over again. I feel like the life that I live now is 100% focused on trying to be a good person and trying to take care of others and trying to remove obstacles as some sort of, this is what I owe the universe for all the trouble that I caused. Mm -hmm. You know, as a young man, it really is kind of a powerful motivator when I think back Mm -hmm. on what a knucklehead (laughs) I was earlier in my life. Does anything stand out for you as an event that really changed your life or you felt that was your loneliness or darkest moment? To really tell kind of an intimate story, I remember a very specific moment in time. I was in the middle of a divorce. A lot of times people will say ugly divorce. I don't know how, I don't know any breakups of any kind, whether they're marriage or a relationship of any kind. I don't know if they're ever fun, right? And so I'm in the middle of this really stressful time and was significantly less kind of version of myself than I could be. And I remember very specifically, I headed for the pub in the village that we lived in in England because I was going to address some issues I had with a man that I knew would be there. And I knew he would be there because Every Thursday for 10 years, he had been at the pub at this time, and I was going to go there and I was going to do something that on some level I knew wasn't okay, I knew wasn't healthy for me or for him, I knew I would regret it, but I also knew it was going to happen. And I walked into that pub ready for an altercation, and he wasn't there. Hmm. And I don't know why on that one time in all the many, many weeks and the many, many Thursdays that he had been there, why he wasn't there that time. But I know he he wasn't there. And I left and I walked home a different way. And I remember walking through the park. It's actually, for anyone that's been to Ely in Cambridgeshire in England, I walked past the cathedral and down through the park at the back of the cathedral in Ely. And it occurred to me like how completely out of control. I wa- I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, what was about to happen? And I sat there on a park bench, you know, by myself. And it really occurred to me for the first time that, um, that the, as we said, the common theme in all of my problems was me, right? Like, I'm the problem and I've got to address some things. And that really started what I'd say is a fairly long probably longer than it needed to be, but certainly a path to healing and kind of making some course corrections in my life and who I was that I think would be seminal in anything that would come after that, right? I mean, really important kind of changes. I'll never forget that night. Like, it was spooky how something that I was so certain was going to happen then didn't happen. And then all of a sudden, 
I'm in a different place. And I watched a lot of Kung Fu after that, the old TV series with this kind of fake philosophy, right? Do you know the TV series I'm talking about from the early 70s? There was a TV series and there was an old Shaolin monk in the TV series and he would give this advice, which in the TV show was framed as some ancient Chinese wisdom, but I'm sure it was all just made up, you know, for TV in 1972. But it was funny how much of it resonated with me. And I was like, yeah, I should just do that. Just be peaceful and a fascinating journey. Outside of using <laughs> that as a guide to get you out of that dark place, you said you used some strategies yeah, and you did yeah. something to turn your life around. What specifically did you do, if you recall now? It was about me and my priorities and really understanding what's actually important. I think that a lot of times throughout my life, I had made stuff that I didn't control and that I wasn't truly responsible for, the things that gave me worth, the things that I valued and that I felt gave me value were things that I didn't actually have control over. The stuff that I owned or the girl that I married or the rank that I had. And ultimately, I don't control any of those things. And so, to really kind of flip this switch and go, wait a minute, the things that truly give a person value are the difference that they make in the world, are the changes that they can produce in their environment. It's the way that they can help other people. And those things really give you value and you control them 100%. You always control whether you're a good person or not. Like, that's yours. And after I could flip this switch, man, the pressure really decreases. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I can decide if I'm valuable or not. I can give myself worth by just making positive changes, right, in my environment. And I think more than anything else, I think that's what it was, is that it wasn't about chasing stuff. It wasn't about these other things that my happiness is something that I owed myself and that it was something that I controlled and my value was something that I could own myself mm -hmm. and give to myself. I think that's when it really started. I also spent, in those days, I spent a lot of time on my bicycle, which I did spend a lot of time thinking. But I also think, you know, looking back on it, the physical changes the chemistry and the hormones, the things that happened when I was spending hours and hours in aerobic activity and breathing fresh air and cycling all over the countryside. I don't think, although at the time I thought it was a lot of mental health just to be alone and to think and all that, and it was, but I also think there was a lot of physical benefit there that helped my mental state, helped my emotional state that I'm not sure we give enough credit to. It really is like comprehensive fitness is comprehensive. I mean, it's important. Mm -hmm. You know, that was part of it too. I took better care of myself physically starting then and until now than I had for a decade before that. What was your routine like? At that particular moment when I was cycling, I mean, I would do training ride in the morning and training ride in the afternoon, big long rides every Sunday. I was meticulous. I think maybe that was also part of my formula that was helping my grid at the time was I was very measured and very deliberate. I paid attention. Like I knew exactly how many calories I ate every day. I, I was going to drink this much water. I was going to eat at this time of the day. That kind of routine was helpful for me. Mm -hmm. 
and I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed the science behind my training and cycling. I never thought I had enough physical talent to be competitive if I didn't do all of those things. So it was very important to me to be competitive. I needed to be that kind of formulaic in my approach. As I would move from cycling into other things, it was still the same. I enjoyed the little games that I would play with fitness, if I could lift a little more weight or I could run a little faster or whatever. Those small challenges and small pursuits were always a little bit of a distraction, a little bit of a challenge. It was something to think about, something to focus on. I always thought that was kind of helpful mentally. And then the physical, I mean, you just feel better if you're not overweight, if you're not you know, lethargic, if you're not spiking your blood sugar, it just makes everything easier. I think a lot goes in there. I don't think we still fully appreciate or understand the, you know, ma'am, I barely got out of eighth grade, right? So I'm not the most educated person in the world, but I watch a lot of YouTube, right? And I think the more that we learn about psychology, the more we understand how intertwined with physiology it is. And so, I don't think we can ever take too good a care of our bodies and the benefits you get from exercise and a healthy diet and hydration and enough sleep. Those aren't trivial things. Those are huge, huge things mm -hmm. when it comes to how you can get through any difficult situation. It's the first thing we do if we want to break someone, right? In a POW camp or something, we start depriving you of those things. Like it's because it makes you more susceptible to giving in. And that's kind of the opposite of what we want in our day-to-day -day life. We want to be able to handle anything. So we should be full night's sleep and hydrated and eating right and exercising. Do you still adhere to all those principles? Yeah, I try. Man, it's hard, right? Like our schedule challenges us and I've got priorities. So I prioritize now to sleep. Very seldom do I get up with an alarm clock and very seldom do I not get at least seven hours of sleep in a night. We flew in from DC this morning, so I had to be at the terminal at six o'clock. And so I made a choice this morning based on things that happened yesterday, whether to get up and exercise or whether to sleep that hour longer. And I prioritized to sleep, knowing that tomorrow I'll land, I'll be home by 1600 and I'll get my bike ride in tomorrow afternoon. But to really kind of look holistically because the schedule is just such a challenge. But what I've learned through trial and error is that there's no substitute. If I don't make time to exercise, if I don't make time to go grocery shopping so that I can eat correctly, if I don't make time to get enough sleep, the time that I'm at work, I'm not as productive. And so I'm going to pay for it somewhere. So it's just easier to carve all that stuff out. Mm -hmm to carve out Saturday and say, I'm not checking email. I'm going to take a day, like truly a day off and recharge so that when I am at work, I'm present, I'm there, I'm energized and I can get work done. Like we tell ourselves these lies about, I don't have time to do these other things. And I just don't think that anymore. Maybe if I had all the time in the world to do everything, I wouldn't need to exercise. I wouldn't need to get enough sleep because I wouldn't be having to do important things with the rest of my day. I think the more important the rest of your day is, the more important entering that day rested and hydrated and exercised is. It's super important. 
I completely agree with you. I exercise often and I'm a little bit broken right now, but oftentimes I'll do a couple workouts a day, sometimes more, but I will prioritize sleep over exercise. If I'm sleep deprived, I feel like I'm no good. I feel like emotional. I feel like I'm irritable. I'm not thinking clearly. So I definitely feel the difference. Even if it's two nights of six hours of sleep, I can feel it in my mental output. Yeah. I mean, it's just true, right? It's science. You're lying to yourself if you think you can get by with not enough sleep. Like, you just can't. Mm -hmm. Of all of the things, that's been the one that I compromise on the least these days. Mm -hmm. I think you always have to. Sometimes life throws something at you and you're going to compromise. But it's sleep that has become kind of the most important thing to me. The first thing that I put on the schedule, if you will, I'll be like, no, no, like this is bedtime. If I got to get up at four, then I'm going to bed at seven, right? Like I'm going to figure it out. I think sometimes people make resilience or grit complicated. And a lot of the times it's not that complicated. It's simple things. They're difficult to practice consistently, but the recipe isn't that difficult. Right. Yeah, there's a difference, right, between simple and easy. Mm -hmm. It's simple. Like it's as simple as just doing it. And that's really, really hard to do. You know, it's not easy. But I agree. I think it's a pretty simple formula to be ready for whatever life throws at you. What is your favorite failure? Man, I feel like we've talked a lot about my failures. There's so many of them. (laughs) I didn't Uh, mean to. No, no. There's so many of them. I don't know if I have a favorite failure, but I really mean it when I absolutely can trace every single failure to me. And I think that I wouldn't wish my life on my children ever, but I wouldn't change my life in any way. Like every one of my failures matters to me today. Even if I didn't at the moment appreciate it or learn from it, I can look back now and go, this is what I should have done. This is what I could have done. This is what I learned from that. This is what I'll never do again. I don't know that I have one, just like I don't have none of my three cats are my favorite. I don't know if I have a favorite (laughs) failure. They all offer me something that I learned from. And the common theme is I was the goofball in every single one of them, for sure. Mm -hmm. You're into this concept of radical responsibility. Yeah, I think. I haven't heard that term before, but I do think... That makes a lot of sense. If you're going to get through something, you've got to focus on the you in that thing. Like the environment can be harsh, right? Like there can be plenty of things that you can't control and that aren't your fault. But the only way you can get through it is for you to take responsibility and say, okay, this is the weather and it's not good. And this is the environment and it sucks. But if I'm going to get from point A to point B, That's about me. That's not about some magic wind coming up behind me and pushing me along. Like, I've got to figure it out. So, yeah, radical responsibility. We'll hashtag that. Okay. Okay. I like it. (laughs) This is not my phrase. I think it's Joko. If you had a magic wand, what would you change either in the Air Force or the Space Force in terms of culture of grit and resilience? I would take away fear. There's so many things that we don't do because we're afraid. And 
I don't think any of them are good. We can't make decisions based on fear. We can't live our lives trying to run away from discomfort when we could live our lives running towards meaning, right? Like we can run towards positivity and we can get somewhere. If all we're doing is running away from negativity, there's no guarantee that we get away, right? Like that squirrel in the road becomes obsessed with trying to get away and he doesn't just cross the street where you just have to pick a positive place and go there. And it's fear that rules so much of our lives. If I could take anything away, I'd just say, nope, nobody's afraid. You're not afraid to have that conversation that's uncomfortable. You're not afraid to take a risk that you know the reward is in your best interest, but you're afraid because what will somebody think or what happens if I fail or what? Boom, I'll just tap everyone on the nose with that magic wand and say, you're not afraid of anything. Hmm. Maybe a close second would be that. I wish everybody knew that what really makes them valuable is the difference that they make in the world. And it's not the car that they drive or how beautiful their wife is or how much rank they get or how many letters are after their name. Those things really aren't what make any of us valuable. What makes us valuable is the change that we can produce. If you can really know that, I think it makes your life so much better so much easier. And there's so many times the challenges that we have to our resilience, the things that challenge our grit, too many times, those are about things. I'm like, why is that even important in the first place? Like the secret to it is just realizing, wait a minute, that's just not a thing. Like I don't need to get a promotion. I don't need to get a raise. That girl doesn't have to like me or I don't have to drive that car. Like I've made these things up in my own head. If I could get rid of fear and if I could get rid of that stuff and get people to value themselves by things that are truly important, that would be magic. Everybody's afraid of something. Yeah. yeah. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid of letting people down. I've done it too much in my life. I don't want to do it again. Yeah. I'm afraid of this podcast sucking. No, it's going to be so yeah. beautiful. What comes to mind? That's it. There's very little that I'd say I'm afraid of, but I don't want to be a bad father. I don't want to be a bad husband. I don't want to be a bad chief. I don't want the Space Force to not get my best. I don't know that I'm afraid of those things just happening, but I'm certainly cognizant, right? Every day when I get up, I'm like, I'm going to make sure that I do what I can so this stuff doesn't happen. I don't know if that's the same as being afraid of those things, but that's the thing that I don't want to happen. Mm -hmm. This is a video that you released, uh, I think, last year. I think it's important, right, that we, uh, that we put it in the right context. We're not asking um, folks to go get training. We're not asking folks to um, be better supervisors or anything like that. What we're asking for is feedback because um, what we're doing isn't working. And we've got to get opinions, we've got to get thoughts, we've got to find out from our airmen what we can do as a headquarters in this command and as an Air Force um, to help. I think it's, 
it's really easy um, to throw around the, it's a leadership issue. Of course it's a leadership issue, but we can't pretend as a, as a headquarters um, that we don't own responsibilities, uh, that we don't architect choices that make things easier or harder on, uh, on leaders. And so um, we've got to think through that. We have to think through resourcing. We've got to think through um, programs. We've got to think through all the options that we have. How do we incentivize um, better, uh, better actions uh, from leaders? How do we take things off of people's plates? How do we, how do we allow for the kind of uh, connectiveness uh, required to really um, be there for our airmen when they need us. I got it. I know. Like, we've thrown CBTs, we've thrown lectures, we've thrown slideshows, um, we've thrown all kinds of spaghetti at the wall, and, and it seems like none of it's sticking. And is this just more of the same? And um, I get that. I know that it's hard. Um, please appreciate that. We, we recognize that. Uh, we're struggling. We're trying to figure it out. There is so much packed in this. Recognition that there is a big ask from the airmen and from the nation to do something to increase resiliency and maybe curb suicide rates. A response from the Air Force to solve the problem. Acknowledgement that over trial and error, we are closer to the error than success. And also transparency and openness to yet another trial. So we'll do it until we can't no more. And most importantly, what stands out to me is your tone. It's a tone of kind of humility and asking for an understanding maybe yeah. for openness. I remember that video when we shot it. And... We did 53 minutes, I think, 53 minutes of film of me just talking like I'm talking to you. At the moment when it was happening, we were faced with a number of deaths by suicide that was really unprecedented since we had been measuring those things in the Air Force. I take it very personally. It's something that I've spent a lot of time in my career working on as a command chief when I was in SAFMR. So it's very personal to me. It's heartbreaking when I think about the hopelessness in someone's heart, in someone's mind, when they die by suicide. It's tragic. So it's very personal to me. And so we had spent all this time talking about it, and I don't think we're doing enough, right? At the time, I was frustrated. I was frustrated with the institution. I was frustrated with talking about it. I'm like, we need to do something. And I remember, so we, we shoot all this raw footage, and then the plan is that the PA guys will put it together into a short couple-minute video. And I came in the next day, and I said, no video. We're not doing it. I was too emotional. I was too negative. It's too raw, and it's not going to be helpful. It won't be helpful. And they said, well, no, we think we can do it. And so I sat down with a staff sergeant, and I said, okay. If you think you can walk the line between me knowing like they know, like our airmen know, that it's enough already, right? Like no more 
just platitudes from the top, like we've got to do something because I know they're frustrated. I know they don't want to see another video. I know this. So if you can walk the line between me saying that and me being too negative, it can't be me against the institution. It can't be, you know, us against the world because us against the world is really a terrible battle cry. It works for a very short amount of time and then it fails because you need the world like we all need each other to move forward. And so I asked them to walk the line between let's us change the world because I understand and we're on your side and help us change the world and it's us against the world, right? And that's what they came up with that video and they did such a great job. And the real beauty of that video was what they did in the editing room with some very raw and emotional footage and what you see is artistry of a staff sergeant and an editing machine and I'm so proud of what they did. I meant it all and there was a lot packed in there. There remains a lot packed in there. I believe that we haven't made significant enough changes on this front and we've got to keep doing more. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind that whatever they're going through, they're not alone, that we have their back, that we will help them and they are safe. And we've got to build choice architectures that make it easier to get help. We've got to build a culture where help seeking is completely normalized. And then we've got to make sure that when someone seeks help, that they get help, right? These are big institutional things that we can take on. At the grassroots level, though, we've got to be connected to each other. We've got to be passionate about helping each other, about being teammates, about taking care of each other, no matter what. And it's got to be genuine. It's got to be honest. The one thing that I think is kind of always there, every morning when I get up, because I've jacked up my back over the years, I go out to the garage and I get up on the pull-up bar and I hang for 60 seconds and it lengthens my spine and it helps my back. It's the first thing I do when I wake up. And every day, no matter how long I've been doing it, a minute is a long time to hang. When you're old and fat like me, it's a long time to hang for a minute. But the thing is, is I know it's a minute. I know the timer's going to ring and I can always hang for as long as I need to because I know the end. There is no question in my mind that the end is in sight. That faith, that trust, that knowledge that it will be okay is what gets you through. Mm -hmm. It is the opposite of hopelessness. Like, you know, when I used to cycle, going up a mountain was so much easier than riding into wind, even if the mountain was steep, because I knew there was a top. I knew where it was. I could train to it. I could look at it. Going into a wind that was incessant on the fens of England, a 30 mile an hour wind in your face for two hours was horrible. I think we've got to do better of instilling a culture where there is no question in anyone's mind that this team will take care of you. And that's such a complex and difficult problem because there's so many layers and so many variables and so many different people that impact that. But fundamentally, that's what we got to do. If everyone knew that, 
then we wouldn't have as many deaths by suicide. I know that we wouldn't. If we all woke up every day and took care of each other in every way, in a comprehensive way, if we took each other to the gym, if we challenged each other's dietary habits, if we made sure that people knew that we were in whatever they were in with them, we'd be more resilient. The team is stronger than any of the individuals. In my last episode, I don't know if you know, Dr. Jeffrey Smith, he's the developer mm, I do of know. PACE. I know when he was a colonel. He's a retired colonel, Dr. Jeffrey Smith. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, the Space Force has an opportunity to shape the right culture, the kind of organization where people want to belong and be proud to be a part of. What are your thoughts on being intentional about developing culture where yeah. people feel like they belong and feel proud to be a part of? First, I think I could go find Dr. Smith and sit down with him and ask him specifics, right, on what he thinks. The one thing, though, that I'd say is, and I think this about resilience, a culture of resilience, I also think about a culture of a lot of things. I don't look at development as a building project. Hmm. I look at it as a sculpting project. I believe that people inherently want to belong. I think everything about human history will tell us that, that we want to belong, that we want to take care of each other, that we want to be part of a team. I don't think I have to build that. I think I have to see it within that block of marble and carve away all the barriers to that so that it just stands there like it was meant to be. I think people want that culture. What we are obligated to do is give it to them without obstacles to it. It's not about building a culture of inclusiveness and connectedness and teamwork. It's about removing the barriers that will prevent that from happening because I believe that everybody wants that culture. Anyway, I think we're hardwired to want teammates, to want a family, to want a tribe. And so to me, it's really about what are those barriers? Is competing for promotion a barrier to that? Is rank a barrier to that? Is the way we assess people a barrier to that? We find the barriers and we remove them, and then that's what we'll get. We'll get that culture. I don't think we have to build it. I think it exists in everyone's heart. I think that's the legend, right? Michelangelo would say, no, the angel's there. Mm -hmm. It's my job to chip away all the rock that doesn't need to be there so that it's exposed. That's how I look at this. I look at it as a sculpting project, right? The culture we want is there. We just got to get all the nonsense out of the way. Thank you for that. Do you have any words of wisdom, any suggestions to the airmen who are struggling with difficult times as we are speaking? Or spacemen? Yeah. yeah. Or, <laughs> service yeah. members? <laughs> service members. You're not alone. Whatever's happening, you're not the only person that's gone through it. There's this great old Buddhist story about this young lady, Kisa Gotami. I think she was a princess, right? And she has an infant that dies. There's a big plague in the land and her infant child dies. And she goes to the Buddha and she says, you need to bring my child back to life because I'm special and my child has died. And the Buddha says, I'll do it. Find a mustard seed 
from a house in the village that has not experienced loss. It needs to be a pure mustard seed from a family that has not had a loss. And then I'll use that and I'll solve your problems. And of course, she starts to knock on doors and discovers, of course, that everyone has suffered loss. Hmm. And this is what allows her to, to find the peace, right, with her situation and lay her child to rest. No matter what you're going through, somebody has been there and somebody has found their way through. You can't isolate yourself from all of the humanity of all of time, right? Like somebody has been there and there's a path. And so I would say you've got to believe that and you've got to just raise your hand and get that help and find the person that knows that path because it exists no matter what that situation is. Thank you so much. Is there something that you wish to add that I'm not asking you? I appreciate you not bringing up that I got misty-eyed while I was saying that. It's important to me. We need every person on the team. And nobody deserves to feel hopeless. And so, if that's where you are, know that you deserve better. And hold us accountable to give you something better, to give you something more. Thank you for doing these podcasts. Thank you for having all the great guests that you have and helping people see these things. I know because of people I've talked to that your podcast matters. I know that these things make a difference. So. I'm just happy to finally be here. We were talking about before we started recording, right? Like we've been talking about this for quite a while now, and I just haven't been able to get out here and sit down. So, so happy to be here with you and COVID compliant, but to be able to talk through all this and hopefully we make a difference, right? That we're adding value to somebody's life today because they deserve it. Thank you so much for these words. And I appreciate everything. I appreciate your visit. And this is Chief Toberman, the Blue Grid Podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's A-N-N-A dot V dot F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mil at mail 